Hi, this is a podcast for of the best bits of the breakfasts for the week ending Friday, October 11. Breakfasts is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Highlights this week included a chat we had with Jane Lopes about her book Vignette. But it's a gene there, but it is pronounced vignette. Stories of life and wine in 100 bottles. Uh, we talked about what's in our car. What have you left in your car that you haven't put away yet? And also got to chat to Luke Carroll um, about his role in the play Black is the New White, um, which is currently being put on by the MTC at the Melbourne International Arts Festival. Uh, I got my Robin Hood on by a bit of beginner's luck with a bow and arrow. Plus, we spoke with alcohol expert Michael Livingston about the his event, uh, alcohol, what kind of drinker are you? And we spoke to Simone Ubaldi, who was glowing about the new film, Joker. Triple R. Jenny, you didn't get a chance to talk about your weekend. No. Um, but 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 it was it was fun. It was uh, unexpectedly uh, grand. I mean, I Friday night I and I drove to the Altways to meet some friends. Oh. Oh, I love I love that. I love a Friday night drive out of the city. Yeah, as well. And you stayed out there as well. I stayed out there for the whole weekend. Oh. And uh, you know, and I it, I haven't had a car for a very long time, so oh, I've been of course. yeah. So I enjoy just you know hitting the road and. Cruising, cruising, basically, exactly. You've got a nice car where you can like just put, you can put on the radio, or you can put on an audio book or a podcast. That's right. I do. It is annoying though because if you do have things in your bag and your bag's on the passenger seat, the car beeps at you, tells you to put on oh, a seatbelt. Seat really? Yeah. Yeah. You've got a lot of stuff in your bag. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> So I had to take out some newspapers. Your bag is the weight of a small person. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, But I, I, and I, you know, they'd been, they'd already been there all day. Um, And so I got there very late, uh, which was a pity. But I got out of the car and instantly there was, they, they were shooting a bow and arrow. Oh my god! Who are your friends? <laughs> Run, Daniel. So, so I turn up, and they, you know, they they have been aiming at this box at the other end, and it's pitch black, oh but they've god. got a spotlight. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, they'd been they'd been putting in, they'd been giving it a nudge all day as well. Anyway, where did they, why did they have a bow and arrow with them? They just enjoy this sort of stuff. I mean, oh. there's a there's a friend who cool. also has, you know, we we'll go away and we'll. Uh, Shoot clay pigeons, and and you know he's it's very he's obviously yeah oh is yeah. it yeah I guess so um <laughs> so anyway I, also the opposite to that yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. <laughs> that's so true so uh. I I get there it's pitch black anyway they're like he have a go and I've never shot a bow and arrow what before do you mean? not even in high school not or really camps or anything oh, I've never no. haven't you oh that was the constant at our school like on school camps and stuff it was we're always going doing art were you good at it no (laughs) (laughs) nobody was yeah just really hurts it does hurt (laughs) yeah but think they they gave it to me and they said shoot at that and i just could not miss i it was really it's just so easy Oh my god! I, I, it's, and hang on to this, this point. This is an Olympic had they, event. Had they mm. all been missing? Like, were yeah, they? No, they're yeah, really missing. Oh wow! Yeah, they get. They can't. They can't hit it. I was the first person to hit it. Oh my god! And and wow, this is it. This yeah. is your thing. Did you feel like a king? Well, it's one of those things where because I don't know the first thing, and I'm looking at, up at now. You know, it was like a three piece recurve bow. There's these things <laughs> called risers and knocking points. I don't know any of this. Just put it in my hand. Wow. And so... Do you have bruises on your forearm? I have. Uh, other people were, had all that sort of stuff, but I didn't have a problem. Oh, my God. You're, you're, you're an archer. You're biologically I'm an biologically, archer. And it's such a waste opportunity. Like, it's not the 1500s. No. Like, no. I could have been useful. I, I Like, I could have been valuable to my family. Like Robin Hood. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, and instead... 
you know, you can go to the, the Olympics. Oh, for this. I'll win! I'll win a bronze Glory. at the Commonwealth Games. Glory! Yeah, no one will remember that. <laughs> I mean, it would be amazing to do that, but it would still, you know, not be. But how, I don't know what to do with this. Like, do I actually continue take, and get lessons? Yes. yes. Mm. Get lessons? Yes. Who from? You don't need any. <laughs> <laughs> you give lessons. <laughs> I give the lessons. But this is because people would ask you questions. Or whatever. It made me. It made me think about athletes who are really good, and then the post-match press conference. Because when you're just naturally gifted, you've got nothing to say. You're not it's, thinking it's about it. So when people are asking you questions, you're like, "I've got nothing to say." I got. I don't know what to. I, I've got no tips. I just don't understand how you could miss. Do you? Oh, um, and then, I'm you, interested. then you sound like Nick Kyrgios. Yeah. Oh, you know, right. a bit arrogant. How, how do you even miss? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'd love to be hated by half of Australia. <laughs> Could be the bad boy of archery. Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> uh, and then, and then, because then they were like, "Well, we walked down to the river. We'll come back to the archery." But uh, we walked down to the river, and um, I fell asleep on the riverbank while they went fishing. What do you mean? What is wrong with you, Dan? Oh, Friday night. It's Friday well, this was this was Saturday evening oh, okay. at this point, and I fell asleep, and the, and then you could hear. Uh, the koalas? Ko- I didn't know koalas were so loud oh. and angry. And I asked them because they'd heard them the night. Uh, they love animals, so they yeah. know what koalas sound like. And I asked them to do impressions. And I'm like, God, they're, they're like grunting and aggressive. And I'm like, is that real? Anyway, yes. Yeah. It was as, wow. as the twilight came upon us, it was like this cacophony of koala aggression. Wow. The mm. horror of the Australian bush. Yeah. And, I, and I fell asleep and I woke up and there was a woman standing over me on a horse. Oh, my God. <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> so we just didn't go and take acid on Friday? Yeah. No, exactly. And then there was a... There was all... Did you know this woman? No, no. I Did don't know she have a bow story... and arrow in her? <laughs> yeah, no. I... She... And the bad thing was, because I had... I, I had... There was a crushed, I don't know where, maybe it was my friend. There was a crushed beer can and another beer. I looked like oh I passed out from God. drinking. I had a drop. But they were like, who is this freakish archery drunk? This drunken archer. <laughs> where are your friends at this stage? They just left you They've asleep. gone, yeah. Are they're fishing serious? down the ri- river somewhere else. They yeah. left you. Oh, that's. I don't need to be babysat while I'm asleep. I didn't expect to fall asleep. And then they, they said they saw me. I looked like a... Uh, rabbit from Wind in the Willows. Oh. <laughs> but still, your friend... Oh. What What about you? What was make you look like a rabbit from Wind in the Willows? I don't know. I mean, How doesn't he you... sleep on the side of the... I mean, yes. I'd rather that than Toad, I suppose. Sure. <laughs> uh, maybe they meant to say Toad, but they were just being <laughs> nice. What, what did the lady in the horse do? She was asking me if I was all right. I mean, people were... <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah. And I, you try and sound super chipper and sober. Yeah. <laughs> so that they, you know, they're not worried and worried that their forest is going to the dogs. And then she went, all right, and left you mm. there. And apparently there was a dog. A dog, there was a, sh- someone was walking there, a dog or a dog came up to me and was hassling me, but I slept through you it. You slept through it. Oh, oh God. wow. And then I went back and shot more arrows. 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 And just nailed it. Would do you reckon you'll buy a, an archery set? I would like to. There's, I mean, there's there's that option. There's also the because of when I fire a gun, I can't miss that either. <gasps> you could have been that like that Olympic. Who's the guy? The guy that smoked ciggies and drank beer. And Michael sh- Diamond, yeah, maybe. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I could. And he's he's in the news for other reasons too. Oh yeah, yeah that's uh, true. Don't want to sorry, But but yeah, like it's that it could easily be my sport, and it, it's not what, what do you I, like at darts. Not not great. Not oh. great at darts. So something about your shoulder, I reckon. Mm. Yeah, right. You must have good steady hand. And I I'm, think you need to pursue this. Well, I was looking at I was looking at lessons online, and it was like you know put the draw the the arrow back to the corner of your mouth, and I'm like, I don't know if I want to know. Yeah, no. like, yeah. I, if you think about it too much, yeah. Then you... I just feel like you're an Olympic telly movie waiting to happen. Yes. Right. That guy later in his life yeah. just naturally picks up a bow and oh, arrow yeah. like, and goes to the Olympics with it. Like the cool runnings of Frankston. Yes. Yes. Mm. But here's the thing. This is, this is your trajectory. You go, yeah, Commonwealth Games, yeah. bronze medal. <laughs> right? Bronze medal. Like you said before, you, you bronze medal. And then everyone's like, who's this guy? 
Who's this guy? And then we go, that's Daniel Burt from Triple R. He's picked up a bow and arrow. And then, and then what a story to go with that. And then, <clears throat> then you'll be on all the celebrity reality shows. All right. Oh, my yeah. God, yes. Like with, you, your, with your bow and arrow, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, be, oh, because I'll be Bradbury of the arrow world. Yeah. Mm. It'd be um, Daniel Hawkeye Burt. <laughs> I'm into that. Hawkeye's good. But yeah, because that's the guy from the Avengers that has the bow and arrow. Yeah, but it's a shame because I would like to be able to use it to get food, to, you, you know, can, feed my... Yeah, I Just can... wait, they have a reality-style Hunger Games yeah. and you get sent in, you're first picked. Oh, yeah. okay. Because I also worry about, like, you know, there was... Like a ho- when horse and buggies were a thing, and they would park them out the front of stores, and some of them would get spooked and run away, mm. and and it was a thing. Like you don't think about it now, but it was a thing. It was driving of then, and I feel like I would have been like a good horse parallel parker, and like, like I've got these skills that have no use. Can you have ride you been- a horse? No, but well, now that it- right. <laughs> stay tuned. Next up, Melbourne's own Triple R. Research shows young people are drinking less now than in past decades, while baby boomers are an emerging at-risk group, hitting the bottle to often risky levels behind closed doors. An event tomorrow night titled What Kind of Drinker Are You? will explore this generational divide and related issues with an impressive panel of academics and journalists, including our next guest. Based at La Trobe, Dr Michael Livingston is one of Australia's leading alcohol policy experts who has a track record of translating research into real policies, and he joins us now. Michael, welcome to Breakfasters. Morning. Uh, You lead the quantitative research group within the Centre for Alcohol Policy Research. Can you give us an insight into the sort of work you do? Yeah, sure. We we do a range of research at all kind of facets of alcohol. So a lot of my work is about trying to understand these trends that we're talking about tomorrow night, what's changing at the population level and why. But also we run a whole bunch of projects evaluating policy change. So I'm working on a big uh, study now of what's happened in the Northern Territory since they brought a minimum price in about six months ago. So it's kind of a a mixed bag of stuff from, from basic epi to social trends to policy impact studies. Cool. And what, what sort of findings have most piqued your interest? Look, I, I'm really at the moment interested in this trend with young people drinking less. We've been working for a couple of years trying to unpack what's gone on. We've seen, if you look back in 2001, about three quarters of 16-year-olds were drinking at least occasionally, and now it's down to maybe a third. It's, it's dropped by more than half in about 15 years, and we don't really know why. So we're, we're running a big study trying to unpack... What might be behind these drivers? Is it is it something we can point to from a policy perspective? Is it a social change kind of related to alcohol or is it broader shifts in the culture that we don't really know about yet? The ones that are drinking, are they drinking less or is, is binge drinking still a big problem? For- um, yeah, I mean, it's still a big problem, but it is going down. So even amongst those that are drinking, we're seeing less heavy drinking than we're used to. But we still see kids turning up in emergency departments on Saturday night. So we haven't solved it, but things mm. are things are on the in, moving in the right direction. And it's not like the kids who are drinking are doing other stuff that's bad. Well, I mean, not not in terms of substances anyway. We're seeing declines in smoking, declines in cannabis use. So it's a it's a general shift towards less of this kind of risky health behaviour. Mm. So why are baby boomers drinking more then? It's a good question. I mean, we we kind of. We know that people in general in Australia are more worried about alcohol than they were 20 years ago, but what we're not seeing, apart from in that youth group, is a kind of change in behaviour. And I think with with the baby boomers, it's not that individual people in in that age group are drinking more, it's that that's a cohort who drank more all through their lives, and now as they're ageing into their kind of 60s, they're not cutting back the way that previous generations did. So it's just the, the kind of... Heavy drinking of adulthood is staying with that group for longer than it has in the past. And the the night is called alcohol. What kind of drinker are you? So it seems fair to ask what kind of uh, drinker. Are you? <laughs> I should have expected this question. <laughs> I? Look, I'm I'm a, a regular drinker, probably just about inside the guidelines. Trying not to binge too often. You know, it's a, it's alcohol's a, a complicated drug. I think everyone has their own. Um, Pluses and minuses around drinking, so yeah. And are people sensitive to you waltzing in and telling them what to do? Very much so, which I try not to do. I mean, that's not the kind of intention of our work is to say you must do this. It's to say here's the risks and benefits of various you know patterns of drinking. But of course, people personalise that, and you've got to be a bit you know cautious about how you mm. get the message across. So the the young kids that aren't drinking, what what is what's the theory behind them not drinking? We've got a whole bunch. Um, but what we do know, so this is something that's happened in a whole bunch of countries at the same time. It's not just in Australia. It's in most of the countries that have similar drinking patterns. We know that parenting has changed quite a bit. Parents are much more anxious about drinking, are much more aware of where their kids are at all times. There's kind of shifts in, in that 
situation. But it, we also think there's probably something to do with the way the internet has taken over young people's lives. Socialising is very different to when I was 17. Mm. I think um, people have whole new ways of interacting, even just of entertaining themselves. That When you had four TV channels and a dial-up internet, you know, alcohol looked very attractive. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we're not sure. But that's, that's certainly some of our theories to explore. We often talk about Australia having like a drinking culture. Is Australia unique in our al- alcohol consumption and have we always been? We, we like to think we are, and actually almost every country likes to think they are. Yeah, I've spent right. some time in Sweden, and the Swedes talk about what special kind of drinkers they are, and of course the English as well. And we're, like, we're not, we've had a pretty unhealthy drinking culture, but it's not, you know, it's not Russia. We're not, we're not world leading. We're kind of um, you know, about 15th or so on kind of um, some of the measures of risky drinking historically. Mm. And that's, you know, that comes from our kind of Anglo uh, heritage, I guess. And it's one of the reasons we think it's improving across the population is the kind of diversica- diversification of Australia in, t- in sort of in cultural terms. We have much more population who don't come from those kind of Anglo uh, drinking cultures now, which you know broadens out the options of how you might relate to alcohol. And in your research, what's a red flag for a boomer? <laughs> we haven't sort of dug into red flags. Uh, I mean, what, what we're worried about, I guess, what my colleague Sarah Callanan is working on is, is looking at people who drink at home, often by themselves, quite regularly. So like every day or most days of the week and, and you know, drinking four, five, six standard drinks a night, that kind of pattern that doesn't necessarily feel unhealthy while you're doing it, but over the life course is going to lead to all kinds of increased risks of health harms. And I think we don't that like people understand that you know getting smashed on Friday night puts you at risk of all kinds of injuries, but people don't understand as well. I think these kind of risks of cancer and heart disease that come from this kind of less, you know, less um, glamorous drinking that's just mm. kind of steadily in the background of your life. And while we have you, can we get a glimpse of what else is on your radar? You mentioned the Northern Territory policy changes and things like this. Yeah, I mean that's a real area of interest. It's the one jurisdiction in Australia where we're, we've seen really big policy changes. They've got a bunch of huge interventions. The, the most exciting, I guess, from a policy research perspective, is a minimum price. So you, every standard drink of alcohol up there costs at least a dollar thirty, which makes cask wine basically untenable, which is often a drink that very heavy drinkers drink. And we're just in the first stages of unpacking the impacts of that policy plus a few other policies to see. This, I mean, the, the NT has by far the highest level of consumption and harm in the country, and we're really optimistic that these policies might be uh, um, effective. I mean, we might see some real um, improvements up there, which could inform, hopefully, you know, other jurisdictions. And what sort of drinks are there that you're like, ooh, yikes, that this, people should curb that one? <laughs> are there any that are particularly nefarious? I mean, cask wine is a real problem. Car- wine in Australia is taxed on price rather than on, on alcohol content. So the cheaper you make your wine, the less tax you pay, which basically encourages producers to put out these four litres of very cheap, um, quite problematic and not particularly tasty wine Mm. Uh, but there are also I mean there are obvious products that look like they're designed basically to get people drunk which are the kind of high alcohol content alco pops which are trying to you know Hit the, and there's the, what's the, oh, I forgot the name of the goat, some sort of goat cider. Oh, it's got a strange name. Anyway, there's, right. a, yeah, there's a few products that are clearly just aimed at intoxicating 20-year-olds, and that's not, yeah, that's obviously a concern. Yeah. Well, what are some gateway, what should we be conscious of when we're being manipulated? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's it's kind of so ubiquitous, you don't really have a good, um, I mean, we, we're surrounded by promotion for alcohol. It's normalised in so many ways. You think about all the football grand finals that were just on on the last few weekends and it's Carlton draft over the scoreboard and the blimp and the, it's I, it's hard to kind of pick apart how we're manipulated to think that alcohol is crucial to all these events but it's just something to try and I mean, I think the best solution is not for us to try and figure out how to manage advertising, but for government to regulate where advertising is kind of displayed to try and reduce that exposure. You talked a bit about parenting before. I'm kind of interested. This is a conversation I hear my friends who have young children have a lot about whether they're going to let their kids drink or not at home because I came from a family where no, no alcohol, but then we'd sneak off and drink behind our parents' back. Is there? Do you kind of have any evidence for what works best if kids are exposed to alcohol when they're teenagers at home, at home in a natural way? Does that make them less likely to binge drink when they're older uh, or vice versa? Yeah, it's a, it's such a common question and it's really hard to kind of unpick with research. The, the best evidence we have in Australia is that if kids are drinking at home with their parents, that's better than if they're drinking elsewhere, but not drinking at all is the best of all in terms of their later outcomes. So if, yeah. you, can, if you can keep your kids from drinking at all until they're 17, 18, that's going to you know, be better in the long run. But if they're going to drink, maybe having some sort of supervised situation. It's, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not a parent. It all sounds very complicated to me. I think yeah, the simplest totally. message is just to try and keep people not drinking for as long as you can. And can you tell us a little bit about this event tonight and whether there'll be a bar? 
<laughs> there might be a bar. It's, it's going to be a really interesting discussion. We've got myself and Sarah Callanan from the centre, and as I said, she works on this kind of older group who drink at home. And then we've got George Megalogenis, Gay Alcorn and Flip Pryor, who are journalists who've either talked about alcohol or understand broad social trends in, in various ways. So it, I'm just hoping for a really kind of wide-ranging conversation about where alcohol sits in Australian culture, whether that's changing, how we got to where we are and where we're going next. Mm, and hosted by Francis Leach. That's right, exactly. So the La Trobe University event, Alcohol, What Kind of Drinker Are You, is on tomorrow, Thursday evening from 6.30 till 8 at Village Roadshow Theatrette at the State Library. You can go to latrobe.edu.au for more details. And we've been speaking with one of the speakers, Dr Michael Livingston. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. We're blessed to have Simone Bolly back from the cinema <laughs> to tell us what she's been seeing. Hi, Simone. And I'm blessed to be here. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. I went to see Joker. Whoa. The first, yeah. Uh, the first and, and most important thing to note about this film is that it's called Joker and not The Joker. Yes. Oh, yes. Because apparently the character is Joker and not The Joker. Did you know this? I've only learned what? it through the, the the conversations around this film, but I did not know that before then. What's yeah. the difference? Uh, uh, the definite the... article? I don't know. It's <laughs> kind of like it was called, the, you know, Facebook was the Facebook. You yeah, you can't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's always, always been called The Joker. Yeah. Well, anyway. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I've let us astray already. Um, Joker, the new uh, Warner Brothers DC Comics um, origin story of Batman's arch nemesis, Joker. Joker. Okay, got you. It is still the Joker, right. Yeah, directed by Todd Phillips um, and co-written by Todd Phillips of The Hangover fame. Um, And Road Trip. And Road Trip and Old School. Uh, yeah, so uh, kind of big budget comedy guy who's turned his hand to an incredibly dark comic origin story with Joaquin Phoenix in um, in what has been universally acclaimed, I think. The film itself is very controversial, but I think Joaquin's performance, except for a couple of bits and pieces that I've seen, people are like this is like absolutely bang on, captivating for the entire duration of the film. The film itself is very controversial. It has been very divisive. It received like an eight-minute standing ovation at Venice, which is actually just a pretty standard response to films at Venice <laughs> and all major film festivals. Good um, perspective to have. Yeah. yeah. And then my understand. I've just been like skimming this stuff since seeing the movie because I wanted to stay relatively, you know, opinion-free mm. when I went in. Um, but since being released has become the subject of much controversy for many and very different reasons. It depends on what you're reading. The the film essentially, so Joker, uh, a guy called Arthur, uh, lives in Gotham City, which is um, pretty much New York City in the 1970s, as lifted from kind of Scorsese's template in Taxi Driver. Uh, so it's this kind of decrepit, falling apart city, and Arthur is a guy who works as a clown, uh, has a bizarre kind of condition that makes him laugh uncontrollably and inappropriately at times but also he seems um, quite severely depressed and anxious and just barely kind of clinging to the semblance of a normal life Uh, lives at home with his mother uh, is attracted to his neighbor in complicated ways um, but is marginalized and increasingly brutalized by the society in which he lives and eventually uh, as a result of that, emerges uh, as a kind of grandiose psychopathic killer. Mm. Batman is not in the movie. I mean, baby, baby Batman is in the movie. Uh, a very young Bruce Wayne um, appears. His father appears in the film, but the origin story, though it's, these characters kind of occupy background spaces, focuses very much on, uh, yeah, how and how and when. Arthur became the Joker in this iteration. I think the film is absolutely stunning and was mesmerised from beginning to end uh, for a bunch of different reasons. It is beautifully shot by a guy called Lawrence Scher who uh, made Garden State. Oh, I know. It's like a weird combination of people from this very odd background because he's got kind of comedy in his background as well, and they've just emerged to make this absolutely spectacularly beautiful art film posing as a comic book hero film. So amazingly shot, 
Joaquin Phoenix's performance um, is balletic and magnificent and captivating and incredibly physical and um, also uh, incorporates these elements from the history of the elements of character from Joker from the comic books that are very, very difficult to kind of render in what is trying to be a more naturalistic is not the correct word, mm. but what's trying to be a kind of much darker film because obviously the Joker is a guy who dances around quite a lot and like cackles hysterically, um, but that's all kind of folded into his performance in a really incredible way. The thing that I really love about the film, though, is um, that it's a film very much of this particular moment and it's incredibly effectively about this particular moment in time and because of that you get a kind of... There's a million different things that you can talk about when you walk out of the cinema, Mm. Um, but it just makes it much more powerful. So it's a film that, for me, was about our kind of evolving understanding of mental health issues and neurotypicality and atypicality Um, and also it's a film about the rise of Trump and the rise of... Um, populism. Joker is a really tragic figure in this film uh, and some of the controversy the film has stirred, which is pretty, I think, hysterical and silly, is about is around the idea that he is sort of deliberately a hero of incel figures and alt-right, disenfranchised white men. <clears throat> I think there are tones of that in the movie, but more than anything else, it's basically expressing a sense of uh, horror and lack of control because the Joker in the comic book franchise is interested in chaos mm. and the Joker in this film is, you know, really claims to not be interested in anything uh, but kind of dog whistles to his supporters in the film because basically there's a cultural uprising that happens as a result of some of the things that this lonely, tragic, depressed figure does and then the city kind of transforms as a result. So at the end he's kind of a weird anti-hero figure and that mm. anti-hero figure for me is clearly... Um, referring to the emergence of Trump as this populist, uh, scary, out of control, someone who is not actually invested in their followers um, but is seen as a leader to those people and is really just triggering different forms of chaos. It reminded me, the film's been compared to lots of things, Taxi Driver and King of Comedy particularly. And De Niro's in it. And De Niro's in it. He plays a talk show host, which is, um, yeah, he's good and... Yes, he's very good. <laughs> and things happen. Um, the What it reminded me of, do you remember after September 11, Spike Lee released a couple of films. One of them was uh, The 25th Hour, which was ostensibly about a drug dealer who had 24 hours before he had turned himself into jail. Is it Edward Norton? Or? Edward Norton. But in fact became a film about the death of the American dream. And then there was another one called Inside Man, which was a bank heist film with Clive Owen and Denzel Washington. Mm. There's a scene at the end of that movie when the bank heist, uh, the people who are held hostage are released, but they're all dressed as the, um, bank, the bank robbers and the police start shooting them with rubber bullets. And it was effectively a commentary on the Patriot Act and the introduction of kind of homeland security laws and America kind of turning on its own people. Joker has the same kind of political impact and effect. Like it... it, it it's a comic book movie. It's It beautifully kind of threads in. It shows how comic book movies are kind of evolving. It's going to be really difficult to make a sequel out of <laughs> for various reasons, but it also is a very um, interesting political film about mm. this moment. It's the best film or representation of a society on the precipice that I've ever seen. Mm. Have you seen it, Daniel? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it's an instant classic. Yeah. So that's how you feel. So did you read the New York Times? I'm only interested. I know there's been so much commentary, but one of the reviews that was shared around a lot was the New York Times review of this. This is A.O. Scott? Yes. Who basically said, it's just not interesting. It's, it's It's not saying anything new. It's it's obvious it's redundant did you feel that at all i'm just interested where i mean i haven't seen it so i can't but you've said it's an instant classic and you're obviously really taken by it it just makes me that seems to be a very extreme opinion i i i mean i ask that's an amazing writer but i cannot understand how you can have that perspective here i can understand look it's not actually a really strong film in terms of the narrative arc and origin films in um in the kind of in this in comic book cinema often struggle in this way to actually have a really satisfying beginning middle and end it's a character study 
But to say that it's not interesting blows my mind. Yeah, it's, I, I couldn't really, turn away. Yeah, I mean, that's paraphrasing, but that was yeah. effectively the kind of point of the piece. Uh, yeah. And Joaquin Phoenix is turning up to screenings unannounced. Is he? Is yeah. he really? Which is, For in light of the why? film, pretty damn scary. I know. Mm. It's terrifying. I mean, he's just pretty damn scary, mm. period. There's like there's way too much going on in his performance. But it really, it, it feels like it's get, it gets like the late 70s and it slams it up to 2019 mm. and it gets the Occupy movement mm. and it sl- brings that to 2019 mm-hmm. and it's an amalgam of yeah. all of that. Yeah. And that's what's really interesting, actually, is this kind of cultural collision that happens because you can see that there are all of these very specific references to 1970s New York, but the Occupy movement is in there, this emerging uh, pressure on the ultra-rich to prevent their own demise by actually recognising that the angry mob will rise if they don't. Mm. Uh, There is absolutely... I mean, the contemporary political landscape in America in terms of Trump is absolutely there. So the idea that there's... That it's boring, like to to be able to do that, but also present a completely credible comic book character mm. um, in a way that's also quite you know revolutionary and, and, and complex in terms of our understanding of what good and evil means. Yeah, yeah you're right. Madness and and insanity has been used as a as a frivolous device mm. in the comic book universe and in, in cinema and in culture generally. We've been really dismissive of the complex. There's this one part, so the Joker has a, a journal and there's he, he makes these like demented notes in it but he's trying to become a comedian and he writes these jokes. And there's one point when he writes, the funny thing about having mental illness is that people expect to act like you don't and it's just a flash across mm. the screen and I was like, whoa, that is just really... That is it's deep. Yeah. It was, but it, yeah. I found it really profound and really affecting. And that, and in that moment, so much of the film was contained for me, and it also opened out the entire genre because you, even though he is horrific and damaged, you have sympathy for him. You have sympathy for a person who who just cannot fit because of the mental condition that they have. You know. Mm. It's it's a it's a it's a spectacular film. Wow. Don't worry about that guy from New York Times. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, you've got so me. That, you've that dude's answer. responsible for clickbait it. just like everyone else. <laughs> exactly. uh, Joker, it is. Thanks so much, Simone. Thanks, guys. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Jane Lopes is an American-born master sommelier with a degree in literature from the University of Chicago who has worked at New York's 11 Madison Park, Nashville's The Catbird Seat, Chicago's The Violet Hour and is currently wine director at Attica, Australia's most celebrated restaurant. Her new book, Vignette, Stories of Life and Wine in 100 Bottles, recommends and educates us on bottles from around the world alongside tales from her own life and she joins us now. Jane, welcome to Breakfasters. Thanks so much for having me. Our absolute pleasure. Um, Now... Last year, you became the only woman in Australia to pass the Master Sommelier exam. Can you talk us about that extraordinary process to achieve that qualification? Yeah, um, it is. It is quite a lot of work. I think. Um, I think one of the most difficult things about it is there's no there's no real set out curriculum, so you're just kind of on your own, figuring out what to study and 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 enforcing it because there's no kind of weekly assignments you basically just what I what I did I mean I took it the first time in 2015 and didn't pass um and I kind of studied really 20 or 30 hours a week on top of a full-time job for a year and a half before that yeah (laughs) it's serious um and then I kind of you know, I took a few years off. I was actually planning to sit it again in 2017 when I got offered the job at Attica. So I postponed it another year so I could kind of settle in there and then um, and then kind of wrote another year-long study schedule to prepare to sit in 2018. Mm. So what's the test like? What, what, like physically and what are you doing? Yeah, so it's um, there's a, um, a theory portion, it's called, and it's, it's an oral exam. So you basically sit down with a, a few master sommeliers for about an hour and they ask you anything it can be you know um different aging requirements residual sugar requirements kind of legal things and then soil types producer questions um it can kind of just be pretty much anything um and there's yeah as i said there's kind of no set out curriculum so you're just sort of having a chat with masters for an hour yeah yeah uh, a very structured (laughs) sorry i didn't mean to play that not at all yeah um but i think you know it is the the oral component i think makes it 
more difficult too because you can't kind of look at the words on paper. You can't go back to the a question once it's kind of once it's gone, it's gone. Oh, <laughs> yeah, filled with so much anxiety just yeah. thinking yeah. about it. That's incredible. Um, and there's tasting tests as well, isn't there? Yeah. So then there's a tasting exam. It's six wines, uh, three reds and three whites, and you have 25 minutes to go through and basically uh, describe the wines in terms of, you know, color and flavors and then structure, which includes, you know, alcohol, acid, tannin, that sort of stuff, and then make a conclusion about what the grape is, where it's from, the vintage. That's incredible because when you go and you go to a wine tasting, it's always, there's no wrong answers here, but there is for you, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, there are definitely wrong answers. <laughs> and, uh, you know, fewer people have passed and have gone to space. Sorry. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Absolutely. It's, it's the lowest uh, passage rate of any exam in the world. But it's not without its controversy. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so um, about five weeks after I passed... They, uh, the organization came forward and said that one of the members of the board, one of the proctors of the exam, leaked uh, a few of the tasting wines uh, to a number of people. And as a result, they decided to invalidate the whole exam, um, which, you know, was unprecedented. And I think. Uh, you know, there have been a lot of people who have taken issue with their course of action and all of this. Yeah, but that wasn't your year. No, it was it my was year. It was your year. Yeah, it was yeah. my year. Yeah, yeah. So uh, technically I'm not supposed to call myself a master sommelier. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so now talk to us about the hospitality, the elite side. Do Because it's, it's life-changing for the people for whom you turn up to your restaurant. What's it like for you on your side? Yeah, I mean, I think that's always the challenge of, you know, it's it's our day-to-day job, but it is people's special birthday meal, anniversary meal, kind of sometimes, yeah, once-in-a-lifetime sort of occasion. And uh, so, you know, you really have to take it as your responsibility to kind of show up every day with uh, with that energy, mm. that it, it to make it feel very kind of special and novel for people even though it is kind of yeah what what we come to work and do every day yeah um but i think it's the the energy coming from people that kind of reinvigorates us because um you know we get we have such amazing guests and people are Mm. so excited to be there um and it's just uh yeah that's that's definitely energizing for me and what what is what is an uh, an aha moment in your industry (laughs) um you write about in the book yeah yeah we we as sommeliers, we kind of talk about aha moment as kind of the wine that you had that was basically like, oh, I get it now. Like, you know, wine can be delicious and interesting. And I think we all kind of get into it for various reasons. And then you have kind of a wine or a few wines and you're like, oh, wow, wine. I can study this for the rest of my life. Yeah. yeah. <gasps> can you, as someone who studies wine and wine is a profession, can you drink wine for total pleasure, free of thought at all? Absolutely. Really? Yeah, yeah. I think that's something, I mean, I guess not completely free of thought. For me, wine is still, I guess, never about just, like, getting a buzz. Yeah, It is Mm -hmm. about, like, you know, having a, a social experience or... Uh, or, you know, or just kind of sitting there with, with the wine. And so I think for me, there is always that little bit of an intellectual component, but it, it really, I'm, I guess I'm not so analytical to the point where I'm not just enjoying the fact that I have a glass of wine in front of me. And do you, how do you keep a lid on that? Cause I'd imagine if you just went to a restaurant and some, someone said, do you want to see our wine list? Do you just go, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How do you kind of, yeah. you know, I mean, I think I, I really, I love wine so much i also love this industry so much that for me when i'm going out i really want to engage with people i really want to dive into their wine list mm. for me it, it continues to be very exciting mm. like if you go to a, a winery and the um the winemaker's there and he starts giving the everyday spiel about wine are you like they might not recognize you or know who you are do you flag it do you say i <laughs> Uh, no, 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 no. I, I would never kind of <laughs> say, oh, 
you know, actually. Because it's weird, but, but obviously if they found out, surely that would change the conversation that the two of you would, would have about wine. You know what's funny? I think most of us and me being on the other side of this too are good mm. at kind of picking up the cues when someone's oh when you know what you're talking about someone's yeah. in the industry yeah. where you're like oh you you get it you probably yeah. work on wine um but if not it's like it's it's a bit of fun yeah, yeah. i mean I'm, I'm happy to kind of hear the spiel that everyone else gets and um you know i think too it's kind of you know, there was a very famous restaurant critic in the U.S., Ruth Reichel, who would go in disguise into restaurants because she and and sometimes disguise of people who were typically kind of treated more poorly in restaurants, like an old lady or kind of like a, um, you know, someone who's has less money or something yeah. like that. And she really wanted to see how people treated her. Um, and so I think for me, it's really interesting when. People don't know, and I feel like that's when we get the most authentic. I say yeah. we, my husband is also in wine um, restaurant experiences. I think we love that when people don't know who we are and still just like are loving their jobs and so enthusiastic and give us a great experience. Yeah. There's so much knowledge in the book; it's brimming with it. Uh, is it a tidbit or an element of there that you're surprised that you know that other people, you know, come across every night, but might not take on board. For instance, I'm thinking about why people send bottles of wine back or why when we're asked to to sample it um, before you pour the glass. Like if is it is that necessary? I mean, is refermentation the only reason someone might send a bottle back? Um refermentation's probably the one of the less common things. I'd say it's the most common reason a wine is going to be flawed is cork taint. Mm-hmm. It's less common in Australia because there's so much screw caps. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of the most common reason. I mean, at most at most kind of restaurants with a decent wine program these days, the sommelier is going to just pour a splash of the wine and, and smell it, taste it before they serve it to you. Um, so they're kind of verifying that it's sound. But, you know, we pour you a taste to verify it as well because... There have certainly been a few occasions where I've missed something that someone else has picked up. Um, and also, I mean, it's technically it's not supposed to be if you like the wine or not. Mm. But I think most good restaurants, too, will take back a wine if you don't love it. Especially if I've sold that wine to you. If I'm like, you're yeah. going to love this. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I don't love that. Like, I'm going to definitely take that bottle back and get you something that you like. Can I ask about pairing? So when you're matching wines to food, how much of the food do you have to eat? Um, You're like, I, I'm, I'm afraid that was delicious, but I'm going to need another one. <laughs> yeah. You know, sometimes I definitely play that card. <laughs> but I think I, working at the catbird seat, the menu changed really rapidly. And sometimes I would get like a rough description and basically have to bring in a few different wines to have ready to go. And so I got pretty good at kind of hearing the description of the dish, asking questions about like acidity and sweetness and texture and all those things and and pairing kind of based on that. Mm-hmm. So I think I'm I'm pretty good at kind of a, a tasteless pair, but it certainly is always better if you can get an opportunity to actually taste the food with the wine. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I'll tend to do at Attica's. I'll hear about the dish, I'll bring in a few options and then we'll taste them together and then make a decision about what's best. And what what about vocabulary? Do you lean into it or is, is it, a, a, you know, the verbose? Yeah, you know, not not for me. I think, um, you know, especially in the book, I tend to maybe get a little verbose with sort of my emotional descriptions of wine, but rarely am I kind of like in this like, oh, it's like dried peony dust or whatever. Like, <laughs> yeah. <it's- laughs> You know, I tend to just be like, oh, it's like white flowers. You know, it's, uh, I think, simplifying uh, Mm. our language for wine is perhaps the greatest thing we can do to sort of sort of bridge the gap with the consumer. Because ultimately, someone sits down in a restaurant and they're talking to us about styles of wine that they like. We need to be able to hear what they're saying and kind of attach that to to what we've tasted in our mind. it is a beautiful book. The uh, just quickly the the selection. How did you whittle it down to a hundred? Mm. 
You know, it honestly was kind of more about styles of wine for me um, and kind of the styles that I've had had this emotional connection with. And then once I had those styles, really kind of looking at, okay, what are the one, two or three bottles of wine that can be sort of iconic of this style? Yeah. Well, it's a beautiful book and a fascinating life. Uh, Jane Lope's book, Vignettes, Stories of Life and Wine in 100 Bottles, is out now through Hardy Grant. Thank you so very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Triple R. Uh, I've got um, <clears throat> something in my car that doesn't belong in a car. <laughs> oh, <laughs> this is filing a police report. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just... Guess what's in Jess's car? <laughs> All right, guess what's in my car that doesn't belong? Here's the thing. Like, no, it's just I um, on. I don't know when we got it. We had to go to pick go to um, pick up. I bought a split system. Air conditioner, please. I know, I know, climate change is a problem, and I know I'm contributing to it. I'm so sorry, but it's going to be hot, and I just, I just want to be cool sometimes. I won't use it all the time. Please right. don't I get think, angry. I think at a lot me. of our listeners would have air conditioning. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I bought an air conditioner, and um, part of by you know I'm getting it installed. I can't do that. I have to get someone to do it for me. Thank God, Kath isn't trying to install it. Oh no. <laughs> But also, uh, yeah, anyway, um, so got all that organised and it was one of those things that was supposed to be delivered to, to my home and then the, and then the third party come in and install it and it was all, but it was all booked through where I bought it and stuff and it was just, it's a lot going on. And then, so I get a call from the um, people that are installing it going, and I'm like, I don't have it yet. And they go, oh, okay, well, just let us know when you've got it. And I'm like, okay, and then you know, just didn't come, and then get the call. Like, oh yeah, it's arrived. I'm like, well, it, it hasn't because it's it's here. Like it's not here at home. It's supposed to be delivered to my house. And they're like, oh no, it's in the store. When do you want it delivered? I was like, oh, I got it. Maybe I'll get it to the. I don't, I don't know when I'm home. And wh- why don't I just come and get it off you? This is so much easier. So, Kath and I went and picked it up. It's quite heavy though, mm. so Kath helped me put. Actually, Kath didn't help me at all. The store person helped me put it in the back of the car, and um, Kath guided it in. She was up buying other things. And then <laughs> she, she came in and went, "Oh, oh, this is done." I'm like, "Yeah, thank you," <laughs> but I didn't do anything either. Anyway, the store person got it in the back of the car, and it has stayed there since. It's I think no, it's, yeah, it's been a week or That's something. That's a huge thing to have in the car. Isn't it? Yeah. I'm thankful for my slightly tinted windows. Yeah. Because I'm thinking, like, like I, it has been weighing on my mind the whole week. I mean, that's, yeah, and literally weighing on your car. Yeah. That's a <laughs> heavy thing in the back seat of the car. So now it's it's like this, I have this air conditioner in the back of my car. And I'm like, well, this is where this lives now until <laughs> until I get it installed, which will be happening, like, in a week's time or something. But it's like... And I just, I'm just curious to know what is in, what's mm. in your car? What's in your car that doesn't belong there? Because I'm talking about things like you, you've got a bag that's got to go to Vinnie's, aren't you? That someone, someone has a bag of clothes that they're going to donate that has been in there for three months. Mine's chockers. I mean, mine's so packed it's spilled out from the boot into the back so it's seat. An, it's just an extension of Daniel's bag <laughs> and clothing. Uh, and but the, in particular, there's there's an ironing board. What? That is You've just... only had your car for like a month. <laughs> I, know, I, was gonna, I thought you were going to say there's nothing in my car. I've got a new I'm, car. I'm living out of it now. <laughs> um, there's an ironing board and it it is so inconvenient. I mean, it was, yes. it's the world's worst ironing board even when you're using it. Who even has ironing boards anymore? Really? How do people iron their clothes? Just on the table with a towel. Oh, oh no. <laughs> is, that not, is that weird? You are the odd one out there, mate. That is... Oh, okay. that is really? <laughs> yeah, get an ironing board, for goodness sake. That is not a thing that is normal. Yeah, sure. That's what you do when you can't find the ironing board or, you know, things. That, it's Sarah Smith, get an ironing board, for goodness sake. I have Can one I in my car. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, but it's the legs are so short, It's you would have to put it on a table. So you may as well have the ta- like it's, mm. it's like something a hobbit would use in a pinch. <laughs> and so now it's in the back of my car <laughs> rattling around. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, they do, and they do, like ironing boards do rattle. Yeah. Oh. And there's no coating on it. 
so there's no cloth protecting the rattle. It's a, <laughs> and so if I have a guest in, the, and not a guest or a visitor, if I a pass <laughs> a guest in your car, welcome to my tonight show, <laughs> my guest. <laughs> so if I have, if oh. I have a, a passenger, they're like, "How do you put up with this? <laughs> what is taking it out? It's, it's not like I've, an aircon. Yeah, very busy. I I have to take it somewhere, but I haven't been able to get there. Oh, okay, oh. so you can't. It's not just there because you've got to throw it out. You've got to. <laughs> Give, yeah, it's yeah, got a place it's, to it's go. It's got a place to go. Is it Sarah Smith's house? <laughs> That's right. I, so. I, I can relate. I don't have this because I got a new car last year. The buying of the new car was the thing that got rid of the thing that was oh. in my previous car. It was in there. There was two things that were in there for four years. Oh, my God. And it just got to the point where I actually felt physically, like, tied to this thing rolling around my car. So we, when we cleaned out our farm, when we sold it, it was like a massive clean out. Seven years worth of shit. Sheds we had to mm. unlock that had never been unlocked. They were like mummified rats on everything. It was it was a big deal. Yeah, and your and dad loves loves an auction. Loves an auction, <laughs> loved locking shit up for 70 yeah. years and then just leaving it there. And so we, we, well, we had to clear out so much stuff. And when it got to the end of this like month-long process, there was just bits and pieces from our lives hanging around. And I didn't know whether to throw it in a skip. I was over it. And there was two things that I grabbed, these two Roald Dahl books that I found just mm. lying on the ground that I thought I'll grab those and this like polished rock, <clears throat> like one of those rocks, like, an, like, like, a, fabri- rock- like a fabric. Fabergé egg, you know, oh, but right. not a Fabergé egg, just Is a it polished from rock. Your rock crew days. Yes. <laughs> a bit fancier, a little, yeah, right. A little bit fancier, just a polished rock that had been in our house on a shelf at one point. Okay. And I went, oh yeah, I need, yeah, I'll chuck these oh. in the car. And I went, they went on the floor of my car, and then for then, four years, four years, four years, this polished rock just rolled around. People used to get in, they'd be like, "What's this nice rock on the floor of your car?" And I was like, "I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> I don't want it in my house." And then they'd go. Why do you have two Roald Dahl novels tucked in the back seat? They'll go, I just, I also just don't want to bring them into the house. I don't know. But I don't where know. are they now? I don't know. I can't remember. Did when you leave you, them in the car when you sold it or go? I would have taken them out, but actually, I, don't, I think, actually think I took them out and threw them both in the bin. Wow. After four years. Yeah. But I don't understand what the mental block was. Like mm. something affected me in this. Yeah, because well, they live there. Yeah, they, they live there. That's their home. Roald Dahl and the Polish Rock sounds like an actual Roald Dahl book. <laughs> Luke Carroll has been a star of Australian stage TV and film for 30 years with credits including All Saints, Australian Rules, Water Rats, Stone Bros, The Tenderhook, Redfern Now and is a long-time host of Play School. He stars in Black as the new white at MTC as part of Melbourne International Arts Festival and he joins us now. Luke, welcome to Breakfasters. Good morning. Good morning to you. Your experience seems to defy the laws of space and time. How is it you were in The Flying Doctors? Well, yes, Flying Doctors in the early 90s, so I was a, a youngster. Um, I was about 10 years of age when I got the role, a guest role, one of the episodes. And um, yeah, mate, a long time ago, down here in Melbourne, and I got to work with some of the, the great actors on that. And uh, one of my early mentors, and Ernie Dingo, played my older brother, so it was oh, a massive wow. thrill. Wow. Yeah, cool. yeah, it was pretty cool. And uh, you're also a Mad Rabbitohs supporter. I am indeed. Now, now you're an actor. You're into the Rabbitohs. Russell Crowe's an actor. He's, you know, we all know he loves the Rabbitohs. When, when can you get some? When are you going to be in Gladiator too? Exactly right, <laughs> Russell. I know you're listening, mate. It's uh, your favourite radio station. Um, but yeah, hopefully one day. I would, I'd love to meet him. Um, I was their guest of honour this year at the Indigenous Round. So uh, I sat next to Anthony Albanese. The, Labor leader and uh, Dave Hurley, the uh, Governor General, they're both Mad Rabbitoh supporters mm. as well. But uh, Russell wasn't there at, uh, at, on the night. Um, but yeah, I'd love to meet him one day and yeah, have a chat with him. Yeah, and you also you're a pretty big MC. That's a that's a gig that you do. Is do you have any uh, memories from from your time? It's a pretty stressful role, isn't it, being an M- MC for a live event? Yeah, you're 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 the captain of the ship basically. So you got to create the, the the feel of the night, um, keep it on on track. Um, my favourite gig was at uh, Deadly Awards. There are Indigenous awards at the mm. Opera House, which I was uh, the host of for the last six or seven years before they they folded. And um, it's probably my favourite gig. Yeah, um, you know uh, the concert hall at the Opera House. Amazing. Know, Two thousand people, everyone dressed to the nines, celebrating mm. Indigenous excellence. It was yeah, amazing. Well, speaking of Indigenous excellence, this play is uh, astounding. I went and saw it on Tuesday night. Um, Black is the new white, and it is brilliant. 
takes into account your spectacular MC skills because you play the narrator in the play. Now, this is a role that, you know, you don't see, um, doesn't come up too often in plays. So tell us about how, but you're still an integral part of, of the ensemble as far as, as, as I'm concerned, but I'm just interested to know how you kind of inserted yourself in the play and what was the, you know, the structure around it and how it all came about. Yeah, um, it was. it's an unusual role. Like you said, it's, uh, you don't really see it on the stage very often, but I, I'm, my basic, basically my relationship is with the, the audience. I break down the fourth wall um, and I give every, I'm like a guide. So I tell everybody about uh, the storyline. Um, I give a backstory to each of the characters and I also inform them, give them little clues of what's happening uh, later on in the in the in the piece. Mm. So, um, and also a guide. You know, there's a few hard hitting uh, hard hitting issues in the in the play. So if if I'm laughing, then I gives the audience you know permission to laugh as well at some of the issues that are in the in the play itself. Mm. And in terms of preparation, what what went into it? Um, so we had a six week rehearsal period uh, in 2017 when we first uh, performed it. Um, and so we sat around for the first week because it's a new Australian piece by Nikki Louie, and we sat around the table just uh, workshopping it, uh, adding stuff, taking stuff out, and then we got up on our feet for the last uh, five weeks. And my in re- the rehearsal room, I was sort of lost because, like I said, my relationships with the audience. And so when I talk, I was talking to just walls, so I wasn't getting any, any response. Yeah. So, and then so my my role changed as we got into to the uh, the theatre, and I got an audience, and the feedback I got from them sort of changed. Um, my staging, my everything about my character. So it was, yeah, really Yeah, because the opening of the, the second half, you played quite an integral role with the audience, which is, yes. I don't want to, you know, spoil anything, but it's get up on your feet. Yeah, right. But can, can, you tell us a bit of, can you yeah. tell us a bit about the play? So it's uh, basically based around a young couple, Charlotte and Francis, who meet over in, in London, um, and it's a bit of a whirlwind uh, romance. After three months, they become engaged, and it's them coming back home to Australia uh, Christmas time in Australia, and Charlotte wants to introduce her love interest to her parents for the first time. They're pretty; their father's pretty staunch. Um, so they he meets them. Um, he's not very keen on this young man. So and he he invites his parents over, and they find out that they're old political rivals, mm. and that's when the fun and games begin. Cool, it's, yeah. And they just it's back and forth. Um, it's quite hilarious. Um, yeah, and as the narrator, I sit back and watch it unfold with the audience. It's yeah, uh, and the cast is outstanding. Great cast. We have a great cast. We've got uh, Jeff Morrell, who's one of Australia's finest actors, stage, uh, film and TV. He's so funny. Yeah, he's amazing. How, he's he? just got funny bones. Yeah, he's amazing. He's such a good actor. Um, and it's always he was in the first production as well, um, so it's always good to have him back. Vanessa Downing, who's the original Pippa on Home and Away. All those years ago, so she. Oh, yes. Oh, I've just re- yes, <laughs> yes, of that's course. Her. Yep. Um, Tony Briggs, who just, uh, did a season at MTC with Stormboy, who's you know, another great actor. Melody Reynolds plays his wife. We've got uh, a young actor straight out of night, Tully Narkle. She, she's absolutely fantastic. Anthony Taufer. Tom Stokes and Miranda Tapsell plays the lead in Charlotte. Yeah, yeah it's beautiful. I think one of my favourite characters is. Um, is Marie Smith. Yes. She's, um, yeah, because obviously the, the play covers a, a, a myriad of issues in current in our current society and the way that um, some of them are, are tackled or, you know, presented is very funny. Very, and very clever. And the key Isn't is right. It? It's very clever and that's why I think it's such a success, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's, she's amazing, the care. She's, yeah, she truly is. Yeah. Speaking it's also, of, sorry, oh, no. it's, it's just nice to see... Um, it was great to see people of different ages getting it on. Yes, yes. <laughs> it was good. Yes. Um, you say Home and Away. You are in Home and Away. Yes, I was in 2007. <laughs> I did a, a seven-week stint on Home yeah. and Away, an extended guest role, and I actually got the role by sneaking into the Channel 7 after party at the Logies. Get out! <laughs> yeah, yes. So uh, I was in there, and uh, the producer came up and introduced himself and basically offered me, offered me the role there and then. And <gasps> Yeah. I thought it was amazing. So and if you play- want to get on Home and Away, then... <laughs> Sneak into the after party. Yeah, one of the networks. Um, and for me, I, Home and Away is Home and Away. Yeah. Um, I thought, why not help me help boost my profile a bit? Um, seven weeks and I'll be out of there. But the role itself, it was playing a doctor. And I thought, wow, as an Aboriginal yeah. man, 
well, I'm an actor first and foremost, but an audience will see me as an Aboriginal person, especially mm. an Aboriginal audience. And a lot of Aboriginal people watch Home and Away. I didn't know that until I was on there and, <laughs> yeah, went out to bars and stuff and got mobbed. But, um, yeah, for Can me... Can you check was... out this rash on my... <laughs> 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 and um, so for me, it was really important to play such a, um, a role that was, you know, a doctor, such a positive mm. role. So, yeah. And what about uh, your relationship with children who aren't viewers of who are who watch Play School and then you go out in the real world? Does it freak them out? Uh, yeah, it does. They ask me how I got out of, out of their TV, and I say, "There's a little door behind your TV." That's oh. jump out. But it's a like I absolutely adore kids. I've got two kids of my own, two boys, and um, it's a dream gig for me um, to come go and educate the younger children of Australia through one of the most iconic shows on mm. Australian TV. Mm. Yeah. 54 years we've been on air for and, um, yeah, I just love it. I love going in there. We have a great crew that uh, produce it and work together and um, this year especially was pretty special. During NAIDOC week, we did a, for the first time in Play School's history, we did a, a Acknowledgement of Country episode. So there was myself, Miranda Tapsell mm. and Hunter Page, all, all Indigenous presenting team and we introduced a new doll, Kaya, to the, to I the remember family. That, yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Oh. Well, Luke Carroll's in Black is in the new white at Melbourne Theatre Company on now until uh, November. The season's just been extended, hasn't it? Has it? Yeah. Yeah. November, yes. Yeah. Congratulations. Uh, the production is part of Melbourne National Arts Festival and uh, you can go to mtc.com.au for more details. And Luke Carroll, thank you so much for coming in. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or via the Triple R website.